This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. All right, for the first time in many weeks, we have a full compliment here at Team Parallax, and the Mr. Millen has returned from his sojourn to the Caribbean. And I think sometime in the not-too-distant future, you need to come on and talk about that. But that does give me time to make up stories. Okay, it would be good, of course, if they were mostly true. Oh, there I was. <laughs> we will tolerate, I think, some embellishment, but try and keep on the mark. I will do my best. All right. Bob, our financial expert, assures us he will come on the show, uh, hopefully next week, to talk about uh, the things you see in the big short. And uh, perhaps a little bit about Matt Taibbi. I, I do hope to mention uh, what I, I saw at, uh, and heard at, at the Taibbi event at the Mondavi last Wednesday. Maybe to close the show. There have been some other events uh, of note uh, in the area in the last week, like the Super Bowl. I have to confess, I was rooting for the old guy, Peyton Manning. I didn't think the Broncos could possibly win that game, but shows what I know. As the late, great Howard Cosell once said, on any given Sunday, any team in the National Football League can defeat any other. And we may hear more from Howard before the show's over. Today's program, as we mentioned on last week's show, will be devoted mainly at least for our lengthy second segment today, to speaking with my neighbor, John Lissack, about his experiences in Berlin in 1936, where he participated in the Olympics. John's 101 years old, sharp as a tack, and I'm sure you will enjoy hearing what he's got to say in segment two. But here in segment one, let's start the show as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 11th of February, this isn't necessarily one of the more epic days in world history because we would note that it was on February 11th in the year 1928 that the Lazy Boy reclining chair was designed by American Ed Shoemaker and his cousin Edward Knabush. They started out using a sheet of plywood and a yardstick. One year later, on this date in 1929, the Vatican State of Rome came into existence at midday with the signing of the Lateran Treaty by Italian leader Benito Mussolini and the Pope's Secretary of State. On February 11th, 1939, the Swedish-Austrian physicist Lisa Meitner and her nephew Otto Frisch published a paper on nuclear fission in the journal Nature. Her work contributed to the development of the atomic bomb and atomic power. Because they realized they had actually been splitting some atoms. Something before that thought to be impossible. And I can't believe that this was 26 years ago today, but it was on February 11th in 1990 that the South African anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela was released from prison after spending 27 years behind bars. The day before that, this correspondent flew back to America from South Africa and thus missed the big event by one day. And yes, as many years later, I'm still sorry about that. That I missed it, Mr. Miller, not, not that Mandela was released. And yes, everybody knew it was imminent when I was there, but they kept saying it may be a week or two, maybe two weeks, we don't know. And so I would have delayed my leaving the country by a day or two if, if only I'd known, but, but I didn't. And I think we'll use the American presidential race as a basis for our quote, quip, and joke. And wow, Bernie Sanders thumping Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire? 
And then out of nowhere comes John Kasich to take the number two spot, which which is good. At least maybe they'll have somebody in the top three now who's not floridly crazy. Because this might be a good time to mention you know, that opinion, like all those right on this program, does not necessarily represent that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. For our quote of the day, we'll start with Donald Trump, who I believe said this before, Iowa and New Hampshire. But uh, said the Donald, I have the most loyal people. Did you see that? I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot people, and I wouldn't lose voters. Yes, spoken by the Republican frontrunner. Our quip of the day comes from Mike Huckabee, who ended his campaign after Iowa saying, Voters are sick of me. And Governor Huckabee, no, it isn't just voters. Our brief joke today comes from The Economist magazine, surprisingly enough, who, remarking upon the floundering campaign of Ben Carson, saying that Dr. Carson's ignorance of the Middle East was so marked that someone suggested he thought the Kurds were a variety of Wisconsin cheese. Our stat of the day is what the Jeb Bush campaign spent for every vote that it got in Iowa. $2,800. Mr. Merlin says if he raised it to three, he'd vote for him. All right, a good news item in today's program is that the Israeli cabinet voted this week to establish a permanent space where women and non-Orthodox Jews can actually pray at the Western Wall, which is Judaism's holiest site. American rabbis, which are oftentimes not Orthodox, and a group called Women of the Wall have been lobbying for the change for years. In 2000, the government began allowing women to pray at a makeshift site nearby. It should be noted that many Orthodox Jews are outraged, said Rabbi Shmuel Rabinovich. The blasphemy that this group and its supporters have perpetrated is so horrendous, it will take years to fix. Well, probably not. Anecdote of the week, we have this. O.J. Simpson's attorney says that O.J. isn't happy with the ads and interviews he has seen about a cable TV series focusing on his 1995 murder acquittal. Attorney Malcolm Laverne says what's annoying him is how they're trying to portray Johnny Cochran. Laverne said Simpson admired the late Cochran, a longtime civil rights advocate, and believes he is unfairly depicted as ruthless and overly ambitious. Well, we haven't seen that special on FX, but we certainly hope that they didn't smear the late, great Mr. Cochran, who we all know was a man of outstanding legal ability. I mean, not only did he keep O.J. out of jail, he did the same for Michael Jackson. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? All right, it was a good week last week for American Muslims in the wake of President Barack Obama delivering a comforting sermon to U.S. Muslims at a mosque. Of course, the stunning part of this uh, story was reported in the Washington Post by Michelle Bornstein, noting that aside from the fact that presidents don't often visit houses of worship outside of their own church, the optics of this mosque visit by this president have been particularly difficult to navigate because uh, he's believed to be a Muslim by about one-third of Americans, according to some polls. Holy mackerel. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for Arabian 
Muslims, with the news that Saudi Arabia's top cleric, the Grand Mufti Sheikh Abdul Aziz Al Sheikh, issued a fatwa against chess. According to the Grand Mufti, it causes hostility and wastes time and is the work of Satan. Now, not being big chess aficionados, we have to concede here at Radio Parallax that chess might be considered a time waster. We even might go so far as to say that, you know, it it could cause some hostility. But we are drawing the line at the statement that it is the work of Satan. And frankly, we are not going to let the Grand Mufti come on this program to promulgate his views on this issue. And just by way of clarification, we are not banning the Grand Mufti. We're just simply not going to allow a platform for these attacks to go forward on chess. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for political correctness run amok with A, the news that a Minnesota school has banned Valentine's Day, Christmas, and other dominant holidays in order to prevent students from diverse cultures from feeling left out. Said the principal, celebrating the days in a school with many immigrants is threatening the culture of tolerance and respect for all. Many parents responded with anger, and one calling the policy nuts. And for more nutty political correctness closer to home, we have the fact that the Sacramento Kings last week pulled hundreds of T-shirts from seats at the Sleep Train Arena. They'd been presented by the Chinese community as a celebration of Chinese New Year, which this last Monday became the Year of the Monkey. Evidently, Kings players DeMarcus Cousins thought this was some sort of racial slur. Even though, as far as we can tell, the Chinese have been celebrating the Year of the Monkey and the other and the other 11 signs of the Chinese Zodiac for a couple thousand years. Amazingly enough, some rushed to defend this action by the Kings, including Stuart Leavenworth at the Sacramento Bee. To quote from his column, the Kings were fortunate that Cousins, not always known for his nuances, saw the potential insensitivity. By alerting management, he may have saved the team from being perceived as the next Howard Cosell, the late sports broadcaster, who finally was called out in the early 1980s about referring to black athletes as little monkeys. The real story is that apparently several times over an 11-year period, Cosell used the phrase little monkey, starting with Kansas City Chiefs running back Mike Adamley, who is white. He also did it in 1982, referring to, to Atlanta Braves second baseman Glenn Hubbard, who's white. So we have a problem with the idea that the Kings were acting like Cosell or vice versa. And that one person's negative reaction to an innocent and well-meaning promotion means that his objections trump everybody else's considerations. Seems to me the state of affairs we're approaching here in this country. And you're free to disagree with me on that. I'm sure many of you do. But really, what's next? Do we take the monkey bars out of the playgrounds? Suppose somebody claims about the name of the monkey bar, an establishment in my neighborhood. I don't know. I just want to close the door on this subject by saying that everybody's got something to hide, except me and my monkey. All right, we want to note by way of corrections, and we, we should make corrections when we air in this program, and we do. On last week's show, I said that Wells Fargo uh, wasn't quite in the same category as everybody else when it came to financial improprieties on Wall Street. But, uh, well, the fact that Wells Fargo, since I said that, had to pay $1.2 billion over bad mortgages means I probably hadn't done my homework on that one. I also want to note that when a general goes before Congress to say that the Afghan war is not a lost cause... That's probably a really good sign that the Afghan war is a lost cause. Not that that's exactly breaking news. I want to juxtapose that story of Afghanistan, the war that just 
is now the, the longest lasting war in American history by what? A factor of two? This war started in 2001. Actually, October 7th, 2001 to be exact. That makes it what? 15 years and four months old with no end in sight? But I want to note that, that last week the White House announced that it plans to spend $1 billion to fund President Obama's promise of a moonshot, that's how he describes it, to cure cancer. That seems like a lot of money, a billion dollars. Not exactly a moonshot. We spent $24 billion in 1960s dollars to get to the moon. But, you know, it isn't chump change. But let's, let's juxtapose that with the war in Afghanistan. Representative Loretta Sanchez, Democrat of California, asked, how many $4.1 billion times are we going to do this before we can figure out that we can get out? Turns out she was referring to the amount the U.S. committed last year in 2015 to support the Afghan security forces. So Obama's moonshot war on cancer would um, not quite cover three months of Afghan war. And if you are keeping score, and we hope you are, since 2002, the United States has allotted nearly $64 billion to build up the Afghans' army and police. Of course, General John F. Campbell says it's not a lost cause. Of course, this does depend on which cause you're referring to. If it's the profit and loss statements of Halliburton, I think it's fair to say it's probably not a lost cause. All right, I kind of hate to close this segment of Downer, but I think I'm going to have to. We've got two items in front of me that just have to be cited. The first is an op-ed piece to the Sacramento Bee by former Senator Bob Graham and current weasel Phil Angelides, titled, More Work to Prevent Another Meltdown, which I think I can summarize in a couple of sentences. Gee, it's a shame that meltdown happened. It was avoidable, you know. And boy, it'd be a darn shame if we let it happen again. I tell you, I knew the fix was in on Congress doing nothing about this when they appointed Phil Angelides to head the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. And by the way, if you drive through Sacramento in the near future, the Business 80, you will observe the fiasco that Angelides is creating going up along that curb between E Street and Exposition. By the way, I understand that every house there is going to have to have a mandatory methane monitoring station seems that by being built next to a dump, there's an expectation that methane will be leaking into the homes. They expect to have homes on sale by this summer. And from the duh file, in this case from BloombergView.com, we have this Better Late Than Never piece by Megan McArdle. She said, Don't blame Americans for blaming China. For years, free traders like myself have glibly extolled the benefits of cheap imports from abroad and dismiss the complaints of factory workers who've lost their jobs to globalization. But a new study by celebrated economists Dave Autor, David Dorn, and Gordon Hansen have found that those workers were right. China's vast, low-paid labor force really did gut U.S. manufacturing and destroy the middle-class livelihoods of millions of American workers. The economists found that a fundamental assumption of free marketeers, that is, if workers lose their jobs, they can simply move and find new jobs elsewhere, largely did not hold true this time. When millions of manufacturing jobs in textiles, furniture, and electronics disappeared, skilled tradesmen couldn't find similar jobs anywhere in the U.S. So now what? Said McArdle, despite the promises of politicians, the workers' problems are not going to be fixed by higher taxes on the rich 
or corporations a higher minimum wage or more generous welfare benefits. And it's far too late to bring closed factories and defunct industries back by slapping tariffs on Chinese goods. We think she's probably wrong about that, but she said that whatever mistakes we made 20 years ago, we're stuck with them now, and we certainly are for the short term. She doesn't propose a solution, but it seems to us that offshoring all of our jobs to China and giving corporations to do so a tax break is something we probably should discontinue. And it's probably time we required a country of origin stamp on all goods sold here in America so people can decide if they maybe want to boycott certain countries. It's going to cost more to buy things that are not cheaply made in China by a labor force that's a couple rungs above slavery. But we probably need to start giving that some serious thought. All right, let's bring this segment to a close. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a break and then come back and learn something about the 1936 Olympics in Berlin from someone who was there. Well, not just there, but someone who participated. <laughs> 